It has come to our attention that a mysterious force is loose somewhere in outer space. Welcome to Talk Tank. Welcome back. We thought we'd throw you into the fashion industry this week with our guest Stephanie Fair. She's currently the Chief Customer and Chief Strategy Officer of Farfetch, an online luxury fashion retail platform that's partnered with individual store owners and brands in more than 190 countries. Their aim? To give the world access to unique designer items which are usually only found in niche boutiques. Hope you guys enjoy. Keep the intro. I'd like to start at the very beginning. What did you study at school and what did you think you were going to be? Yeah, so well, we've, we've just, uh, in, our, in our short walk here, we've just connected. So I, uh, I went to French school. I, uh, I ended up going to the Lycée Francais, which I don't know if, if many of you know the one in London, but there's one in every big city in the world. And that's partly why my parents sent me there, because um, they knew that we were going to move around a lot. And there's one big Lycée in every city. Um, but I, I, didn't, I don't come from a French family. I didn't speak French. I was just sort of put into a kindergarten age five or whatever it was in Paris and just told to fend for myself. So that's what I've done for my son. I just put him in there and, and it works. When you're that tiny, it, it works. So I um, ended up going to, uh, to French school, um, did it here in London, um, and then decided that I wanted to stay in the UK and go to sort of English universities and uh, and applied um, and studied PP at Oxford so and I started at a PR agency first um, and there were four of us there um, the founder an entrepreneur I guess we didn't call them entrepreneurs at the time right it wasn't a thing a startup wasn't the term that people used um, but she you know I thought she was super mature and old she was 23 I was just 21 and, uh, and we basically, I, I learned on the job about business development and client development and how to sell a story. And I think, um, I often get asked about, well, how did you go from PR to business? Like, it's one of the most important skills in general communications because f- for whatever you do, comms and PR is selling something into someone that doesn't want to hear about it, whether it's selling a product into an editor or later on in business pitching you're pitching your story to investors or selling into other teams if you're in a corporate, whatever it is. So I think, you know, I didn't intend it to be, but that PR grounding was amazing. And then it was fun. It was building up a business. Our, the founder, Winnie, made us answer the phone like our own assistant. So I'd pick up the phone and say, Stephanie Fair's office. <laughs> So let me go and get her for you. And I go, hello. <laughs> <laughs> so, this, was, this, was, this was what went on for about two years. And then I moved to Isimiyake, which was more of a brand. And it was more about architecture and art. And I had amazing experiences there. I worked with the architect, Frank Gehry. Um, and I was flying back to Japan all the time. This was, guys, I'm really dating myself, but this was pre-mobile phones or pre-sort of smartphones. So I would be out of touch for 10 days, off on my own in Japan, lost in translation style, um, in sort of um, local Japanese 
hotels and I mean I really it was immersive and amazing and I'm so glad I had that experience so I guess you know partly I'm here you know to tell tell you about my experiences but partly bits of lessons learned I feel like everything builds up to the picture and you know I often tell people who are starting their careers or going into it don't overthink it you you know when you get people like like me coming to talk to you guys it's very easy to tell the story after the fact and to weave a really good narrative and also remember comms that's what we do um but don't worry about it on the spot i, I get a lot of people saying oh but should i choose this or that or but what if it's not focused on my career but it's like everything will bring experience along the way and so then from there to american vogue so yes and that's when i thought oh gosh a i really live in new york this was not three months, we're going on to three or four years now, and B, okay, now I work in fashion, how did that happen? Because that was not my intention. And so how did you join the outnet, which you grew from two to 150 employees? Yeah, it was probably more than that by the end, yeah. That's quite yeah, impressive. that was fun. Um, so how did I join that? I guess um, after 10 years in New York, it was time for me to come back to London. Um, and I had actually worked at a startup, um, and that's the only reason I was able to get that outnet role, and it was because I had, land, after Vogue, I'd wanted to move into business, but no one would hire me because I didn't have a business degree or an MBA, or a, um, but a company that did want to hire me because they said, oh, well, she's got contacts from Vogue, was actually a startup, and it was in this thing, you know, the internets, and e-commerce and I thought oh well I'll give that a go and and so that's how I ended up sort of in digital relatively early on 2005 at least early on in the world of e-commerce and luxury commerce not early on in the world of sort of um, you know portals and you know obviously the the yahoos existed and all of that but in e-commerce it was early and so I I had the startup experience part of a founding team and that's what allowed me to get that uh, job at Net-A-Porter to start their second business called The Outnet, um, which really was, again, a startup, but a startup within a bigger organization. So I guess someone called it, and I was an, an entrepreneur and then an intrapreneur, and I can't tell you which one was harder, because <laughs> they both got pros and cons. And I'd be curious to know, because it's, after all, the Entrepreneur Society, yep. when you grew your business, who were your first hires, and why was this? Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so actually the person, so there was someone there before me, um, uh, employee number one, called Emily London, which I think is a very apt name, and she was a copywriter, which sounds so net a -porté. Start with a writer and then we'll see what happens. Um, but I guess, look, hiring is, is really key, and I'm a big, big believer that you hire the absolute best people you can hire, and I think it's a sign of of sort of a, um, a strong leader, I think, to hire absolutely area experts. And because, I, I mean, I have a simple view on that. If they're the best, they'll look good, you'll look good, the business does great, and everybody wins, right? So why not? Um, and so it was, but then in the early, early days, how do you do that when you're sort of building up a business and you don't have the money? So you start small and you, um, and probably the people you hire in the early days are different to the people you're going to get later. And I saw that even at the outnet, even in an entrepreneurial, you sort of hire 
generalists and scrappy people in the beginning who can do a bit of this and a bit of that and who can and over time as the business grows you start to professionalize those areas now some people are able to stay the course and they're people who stayed throughout at the outlet and then some people who just you know are better that early days and then over time sort of four or five years in really brought in a really heavyweight buying and merchandiser and a really heavyweight sort of um marketer um which we couldn't have afforded at the beginning but then that that sort of skill set would have been lost at the beginning when we were like oh my god how do we plan where are the post-its whatever what a waste of skill set right so i think i learned over time what what you need at different stages of the business okay and so now i would like to move on a little bit to farfetch yeah uh you're the chief strategy officer of farfetch now so yeah. when and actually just recently um chief customer officer so i've taken on a whole new role oh wow okay there. i wasn't yeah, aware of this tell you about yeah <laughs> this is this is This is hot off the presses as of August. <laughs> okay. Can you tell? I'm like, ooh. <laughs> yeah. So when did you decide it was time to move on to Farfetch and to start yeah. something else? So I guess I'd built up the business over seven years. It turned into a pretty solid business. I guess when I left, it was close to 200 million pounds. I've, I've heard... It should have grown more, but it's probably close to half a half a billion now. So it's a it's a solid business. So you know, even though I'm not there, I feel very proud. And for the teams that are still there, I think I'd been there for seven years, and I'd had one first sort of startup, then a second one. Seven years is a, is a while when you're full on. Um, but it was also good timing for me to to leave, and I took a year off, um, uh, where I consulted and I. Um, I worked for investors advising um, uh, on, on their investments. And funnily enough, I worked for an, a P firm called Euraseo, and they had said, Do you, are you familiar with e-commerce? I'm like, sure, I can help. Would you like to advise on a European e-commerce deal? Sign here, NDA. Sure, okay. Oh, it's far-fetch. So I advised on behalf of investors, got sort of stuck into the business, so I already knew them, and I'd already met the founder, um, Jose Neves, who's unbelievably inspirational. He's absolutely one of those true, true visionaries that you're lucky to work for, you know, I certainly do. And I'd met him way back in 2009 at a conference somewhere, and the two of us had just launched our businesses. Farfetch grew a whole lot more, but... Um, But so we always kept in touch and, you know, that's why the careers are long. And, uh, and he said, would you come and set up a sort of strategy team, innovation team? We're moving to IPO. We need to kind of articulate our vision. But also, and this is a true entrepreneur at heart, Jose, he really believes that as a big business, you have to continue to disrupt yourself. And so he wanted to be sure that we formally had an innovation Um, team or group that worked with external startups to keep the ideas fresh. Not that there's no innovation in the company. Everything the teams do is innovation day to day, but having that team. And so I built those up and then I've been there three years and then I just took on this chief customer officer to actually sort of transform our business on a more customer-centric line. So 
Yeah, that was how I got to Farfetch. What are your expectations and your visions for Farfetch in the next few years? Do you want to focus more on continuing growing as a global marketplace or more as a global service provider like your partnership with Chanel, but yeah. also Harrods could show? Yeah, Harrods is coming up too. Um, look, I think both. I think both because they work together. And I don't know how much you guys have sort of looked into platform companies. And this was something that really attracted me after having worked at a retailer, basically. Having worked in the old school media world and then as a retailer, I came to Farfetch and I thought, okay, I get this. This is truly a tech company. It's a platform that supports multiple uh, tenants. And I think both because they work together. The marketplace has the customer experience and the product and creates that flywheel or that network effect to have Silicon Valley jargon thrown in there. Um, and that's the reason that you then have companies who want to adopt your technology. And that's the reason why we also have a whole team that works with startups because those startups plug into our, um, our platform. So a good example, maybe something you guys will download. Um, you know, we know that gaming is probably going to be a big thing in fashion at some point. I mean, why wouldn't it be? Look at Farmville and Candy Crush and, you know, and funnily enough, the stats say that the biggest gamers are not the kids. It's actually women between the ages of 30 and 45. <laughs> They're the, like the most obsessed gamers. And so we know this and we know that it'll be big in fashion. As far-fetched, does it make sense for us ourselves in our core business to invest in gaming? No, you know, we got stuff to do. However, because we have a platform, we're able to innovate. So what have we done? We've partnered with a company, super amazing pedigree. Um, the founder was the editor-in-chief of Porter. She worked at Harper's Bazaar. She's founded a gaming company called Dressed. Um, I mean, it's in the app store. You can download it, D-R-E-S-T. But by plugging into Farfetch, we've powered all of the product behind it and the technology, and they're doing all the front-end gaming. So hello, Farfetch is now in gaming. But we couldn't have done that because uh, we, could, we could only do it because of our platform and because you're thinking about innovation in a slightly different way. You don't have to do it yourself. Right. Does that answer yeah. that one? <laughs> Um, now I would like to move on a little bit to the fashion industry in general. Yeah. You're the youngest ever chairman of the British Fashion Council. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Does that mean everybody is super old? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was. Uh, I wanted to know what. What do you think? How do you think the increased emphasis on sustainability is going to shape the fashion industry? I know Farfetch is quite involved on in this as well. You had the partnership with the Good Chanyu app, which yeah. writes the different... Gosh, you know a lot about it. You've, <laughs> done, your, you've done your research. Thank you. Um, so sustainability, look, I think it's absolutely at the, at the core of what not just fashion, but every industry needs to do. And what's blown my mind is that it's sort of been bubbling at the surface for a number of years. But it's only really in the last two years, at least in the fashion industry, that it's reached a tipping point where people are finally talking about it. And if you talk to Tom, our director of sustainability at Farfetch, he's had 25 years of experience in the industry. He was ex-Kimberly Clark. Um, his job was to figure out what to do with like the millions of nappies um, that pollute the world. 
which I feel like I single-handedly have contributed <laughs> with my family. Um, so this guy is deep in sustainability, and he said the last two years have been the most satisfying of his life because finally the doors are open to have the conversation. And it's tough when you've been that person who's been pushing it and no one wants to listen. So it's amazing that we finally got to that tipping point. Partly, I think, urgency. Like, there's no time to wait. But partly because I think the right mix of the data and the and and consumer demand all of you guys who won't take a business that doesn't think about it you're you're just not going to buy from them i mean you think about it as one of your major considerations and also storytelling i said it the other day you know when someone said well, why has things changed suddenly i said well I, I look i don't know but i know that as humans we don't react to data we react to stories because humans emotion carries and you know what I think has moved the needle David Attenborough and Blue Planet people are suddenly paying attention and so we've reached that point where the industry is paying attention it's clear that the fashion industry contributes a huge amount to uh, to our carbon footprint um, but it's also an industry I believe that has the ability to make huge change not just for fashion but globally because we're an industry of storytellers and brand and that's what moves the needle, hence my point about the, the storytelling. So um, we advise companies. We did a fashion forum, which is our business kind of forum for the British Fashion Council. And one day was on how do you get investment for your business or how do you become an investable business? The other was how do you build sustainability from day one? And those two, there was, it wasn't by coincidence that we did them on at the same time because you can't build a sustainable, investable business if you don't have sustainability as part of your business model. So, yeah, we got a lot to figure out there. And it's all because of you guys who are voting with your feet and choosing as consumers to, to, to choose, dif choose differently, basically. Okay. And um, a couple of questions before we open the floor for yeah, yeah, questions. Yeah. Uh, in such a world, because we're students, what type of skills do you think are going to become essential uh, in the fashion industry, but maybe in, in any, any industry? Um, I, I think, I mean, you've probably heard it from everything I've said. I think the ability to communicate and really, really sell your message or tell a story or convince people and influence, that doesn't get done by machines. That gets done by people. Um, so I think that's going to be really important. I think the ability to be super adaptable. Um, and not just, by the way, if you're an entrepreneur. I think in any, in any business, the pace of change is so fast. And ambiguity is not going to become, uh, oh, the business is going through a bit of change. That's just going to become the norm. So being super adaptable and comfortable with change and the ability to kind of re-educate yourself and be okay with stuff sort of not being clear-cut, I think that's going to be a, a, a super important skill set. Um, I think um, the ability to sort of, um, I mean, you guys have it as a, as a you know, for sure, just the ability to be analytical and conclude the so what piece. So digest a huge amount of information. I think there's so much more information now than there ever was. And so being able to pick through all of that and distill 
the right approach or the right message or the right focus is going to be. And again, you know, I think machines and technology can help, but I don't think that they're going to be the answer. They're going to be a tool, but that has to happen by all of us. So I think those are three. I mean, I'm sure there are more, and I'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, now, a couple of questions about yeah. you as a person. Yeah. What are the toughest lessons you have learned so far? Because that's how we learn, really. So. Yeah. Um, toughest lessons. I think being a very, very young uh, leader. Um, so I was, I, I guess I got the job to run the outnet or to run, to start it. It didn't exist at 29, so I started at 30. Um, which I guess is young, maybe it's not super young, because there's entrepreneurs who are like, well, there's Mark Zuckerberg, basically. <laughs> um, but I think I learned the balance of what it takes to be a, a, a strong leader. I, I, I was very private, and I thought that a way to be super professional and very was to keep my private life totally private and my work life, which I've always been to a certain degree, but I realized it was actually my husband who's like, just going to come across as a weirdo. Like, people would ask me, you know, what are you doing at the weekend? And I'd be like, I don't, you know, it was very Nothing. sort of, I kept my worlds very different. And I realized over time that actually people need to relate to you as a human, not just as a, as a boss or a colleague or as a peer. So over time, I've become a lot more open. And I think it's just built more meaningful relationships with people. And I think, you know, over time, um, that has meant that, You know, it, it was never bad and it never caused a problem, but I've become a better leader over time. So that was a tough lesson at the beginning for people like, yeah, it's, you know, it's great and all, but it's hard to connect. I'm like, okay, now I see why. <laughs> so that was early days. I think tough, tough lessons. Um, I think influencing, I, I, it was a really hard slog. Uh, I talk, said about the entrepreneur piece, sort of to influence internally. And, you know, could you do it better? Could you get your point across better? How do you, you know, um, one of the, candidly, the things that I never got done at Net-A-Porter was I felt very strongly that we needed to look at our customer base across all our businesses, not just the outnet Net-A-Porter and Mr. Port. I never got that. I somehow never convinced. And so, you know, lesson learned, how do you do that? And maybe over time or maybe just white hairs. <laughs> um, So yeah, tough lessons, I'm trying to think. Um, yeah, I don't dwell on rejection a lot. You know, you guys will be rejected a lot. I was, we all are. Um, it's just a game of probabilities. And I just think don't, don't dwell on it too much um, because I genuinely believe that whatever comes out is the right thing because that is what came out. And so you will make it the right thing. So I, I unless it's some sort of a, a, a kind of missed love affair or something where you say, oh, yeah, I wish I'd chosen that. You know, I, I, there are very few times, I think, when any of us are like, oh, yeah, I should have really gone for that job. No, because the fact that you went for a different job, that was the right decision because that's what you chose to do. Therefore, you would, did make it right. So I think don't, you know, don't dwell on rejection or regrets or because that's just a waste of time. <laughs> Um, and your biggest successes I'm sure there were many as well well I don't know I mean I, I, something I'm really proud of is um, again back at the outnet um, we were about sort of 18 months into the business and we got a call from the top from our 
owners, conglomerate, who are like, yeah, what's this off-price business? And it's losing money. And yeah, no point in having an off-price business if it's not profitable, um, which is fair enough. But I thought I'd had a bit more runway than you know, 18 months. And, and we were told, if you don't get this profitable by the end of the year, and this was early in the year, we're shutting you down. And this is a big message to digest having just started a business, hired teams, having people that you're responsible for. And we did it, and we did it. And that I feel very proud, not just me, but all of us who bandied together. And that was a massive transformation from, to profitability. So that was one aspect. And I think, you know, little successes here and there, and then, you know, bigger ones. You know, you, you sort of, um, you, you can't drink your own Kool-Aid ever. <laughs> And what does a typical day look like for you uh, now as I'm yeah. working for Farfetch, but also sitting on different yeah. boards? And um, so typical day, um, yeah, I'm still deciding whether my day is more chaos at work or at home. <laughs> but before, so um, this is partly on my way here, I was calling home because my husband's not home. The, the, obviously, the nanny is home, but, and so I, I um, and he's on a plane, so I had to make sure I spoke to the three kids. So I think before 8.30, it's, I mean, it's literally all bets are off. It's like making sure everyone gets dressed, gets ready, breakfast, out the house, who's got swimming kits, who's got... So yeah, before 8.30, it's, it's pretty hairy. I feel like I've had a full day by then. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, and then the days are busy. I have a long commute from west to east. Um, I tend to do it in a car, but I work. I do three calls by the time I get to work. And then I guess... The more senior you get, the more your work involves people, and it's constant meetings with people and teams and setting direction. And um, you know that's a good thing because I hate a, doing a PowerPoint. Um, but it's also it takes a lot of energy. So my my world is around people. Back to the comms. If you can't, you know, do that, that's going to be tough to you know. Um, And so it's a lot of that. I, I balance the Farfetch and BFC as need. I don't, you know, people ask me, do you do three days on one, two days on the other? It does, I can't do it that way because it depends. I mean, during Fashion Week, I'm five days 100% BFC. Um, you know, we've got the Fashion Awards coming up. That's, that's the team does all the work, but there's definitely that low-lying anxiety. Will such and such talent show up? Or, oh, my God. <laughs> um, so it's sort of, you know, using, using my position to, you know, wrangle people and get people and diplomacy and stuff. So there's that. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty full-on days. But I love it. I love what I do. And I think, um, you know, my, my other little piece of advice, I think, just thinking from my, when you say you love what you do, I'm a big believer that no one starts off, very few people start off being like, um, knowing what they, they're going to love. So that question, which is, you know, what's your passion? Follow your passion, I think is literally the most, um, the worst piece of advice. Because it just gives everyone anxiety. So you're like, oh, oh my God, what if I don't have a passion? And oh, does everyone else have a passion? And I don't. And what's my passion? And then you're like, 
oh god I don't even have a hobby and like, so that business of follow your passion is nonsense I think unless your passion is you're a ballet dancer or an actor or you know vocational I think most people end up loving what they do because they've landed in something and they get very good at it um, and so back to the bit about I love what I do you know, had you told me that I'd been in digital and the internet and whatever and that I'd love it, I'd be like, are you nuts? <laughs> but, you know, over time you get good at it and you build it and that, that means that you love what you do and the days go by quickly. And so I think, you know, that's another one to keep in mind. Don't let anyone be like, oh, what's your passion? So that's just stressful. And uh, one last question. What advice would you give to someone who wants to start as an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur? Uh. Um, definitely scratch that itch. Definitely. And I feel like it's a thing now and there are many, many more people who want to do it than not back in the day. Uh, um, when it just wasn't, there wasn't the structure to set it up. I mean, the whole world of, 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 a VC is much more transparent now and it's clear how it goes and there's even you know playbooks for entrepreneurs so I would say definitely scratch that itch for sure but choose your timing to do it it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do it right out of school or university um, you know there's something to be said about you know getting some experience some real world experience elsewhere um, and I know it's super frustrating because you've sort of had these amazing three years where you're kind of academically so stimulated and then you start in a company, maybe in the most junior role, and you're like, oh my God, I just went to LSE and I'm being asked to, you know, fill out this form. And you're like, what? But, you know, trust me, there is a reason and you do build real life experience. And I know that a lot of people want to be entrepreneurs to shortcut that crap. Um, and sometimes that works, but sometimes there's a reason for that. And so just choose your moment. Um, because I also think you sort of have to scratch that itch when you have something meaningful to put out to the world, right? Or join other people. You know, you, not everyone has to be the founder. Um, I know clearly that I've not, I've, as much as I've been an entrepreneur, I guess, I've not ever been the one who's like, Ooh, so I have an idea and I'm going to start a company. I've sort of been part of a founding team or led a team and grown a team that had a kernel of something. So just know yourself and know what you want to do. This episode is finally over. Thanks to all of you who stuck it out and tune in next time for more delicious content.